It's the My Michelle Live podcast. My Michelle Live, Psy Tech Talk, taking the God story to a geeky place. Here's Michelle. Hey, oh, is it geeky cool today? Scientists have time traveled this morning, Tuesday, the 12th of July, 2022. NASA shared the first images from its newest space viewing apparatus, the James Webb Space Telescope. This is freaking breaking news. It's been in orbit nearly 1 million miles from Earth. And that's we're looking at things now that we've never seen before. It's powerful enough, and this is why I say we've time traveled. It's powerful enough to look backwards through time, closer to the origins of the universe than mankind has ever looked before. The universe has been expanding in every possible direction at the speed of light. This telescope allows us to see almost as far. We can almost catch up. What did we see? What will we expect to see and what can we learn from it? We're going to talk about this amazing story today. I could not think of a better person to break this story with. Hugh Ross is the founder of Reasons to Believe. It is one of the most spectacular organizations, a website that is full of, chock full of science that reveals God in the person of Christ, I would say, because of the extraordinary information that science gives us that points to the fingerprints of God, which points to the God of the Bible, which points to hope in Christ. And it all comes down to this conversation today because it's almost about origins. Hugh is the author of one of my absolute favorite books, Beyond the Cosmos, and Hugh, welcome. Can you share your brand new book, Hot Off the Press? Hot Off the Press, this one, Design to the Core. Ah, I'm so excited to get that one. Very excited. Breaking news all the way around. Big news, NASA. Big news, Design to the Core. We're just breaking it all over the all over the place today. Did I give an accurate description of what we're looking at here with the Webb Telescope? Yes, you are. Last night, they released the first of five photos for the public. And that was an image of a galaxy cluster 4.6 billion light years away. Okay. And last night I posted it on my Facebook and Twitter pages so people can see. And basically what NASA is doing is they're taking five images that have already been taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. But it shows the public how much more powerful the James Webb Space Telescope is than the Hubble Space Telescope. So the image that they released last night, that was a mind blower in terms of all the galaxies and the detailed structures of the galaxies. I saw in this distant cluster of galaxies, and you can even see the gravitational lensing that this cluster of galaxies generated. Galaxies far more distant than that. And the James Webb Space Telescope is specifically designed to look at the most distant parts of the universe. Basically explore for us, what was the universe like? shortly after it was created. Okay, so we're not talking about jumping in my blue TARDIS and adventuring away through time and space, but we are looking at traveling back and seeing, maybe getting a view of some of the oldest parts of the universe. Yeah, and it actually is like a time tunnel because in astronomy, 
It takes time for light to travel from these distant objects to our telescopes. So I always tell my wife, look, you can't hold me accountable for the present because all of my data comes from the past. It takes time for the light to reach my telescope. <laughs> How's uh, that work the, for you? The James Webb Space Telescope is so powerful, it's going to be able to image the very first stars that formed in the universe and the very first galaxies. And so it's going to be able to look far enough away that you're actually looking at those moments just past the cosmic creation event. And that's what's wonderful. Uh, astronomers can now look at the universe and see 100% of its past history. And we're not inferring it, we're directly observing it. We're directly mm -hmm. observing the past history of the universe. It's almost like someone wanted us to be able to read the entire book of the universe. Wow, at this time in history. Right. Think about Let's that. We're living at a unique moment when we can actually observe 100% of the history of the universe. If God places here any earlier or any later, we'd only be seeing part of the story. But he placed us at the right time and the right location where we could read the entire book. Yeah, I'd like to just ponder that for a moment, and then we'll get into more of the science that a new Gallup poll shows that there are fewer people that believe in God than in American history. So our belief in God is seems to be dwindling, and yet the evidence for God seems to be increasing. That's a little odd. It's understandable to me because, you know, the Bible says that heavens declare the glory of God, but for the first time in human history, the majority of human beings live in big cities. And if you mm. live in a big 21st century city, there's so much light and air pollution that the heavens really don't declare very much. <laughs> like for you in Seattle, but in the Los Angeles basin, on a clear night, we can see maybe 30 or 40 stars. Abraham could see 15,000. He could see the Milky Way every night. And if you were to go to places like New Delhi, or Shanghai. I've been to Shanghai several times. On a clear night, you can't see a single star in the sky. Matter of fact, you can only see the moon if the moon is high up in the sky. And so there are places in the world where the heavens are declaring very little at all. And I don't think it's an accident that most of the people who say, I don't believe in God, they live in big metropolitan cities. That's you go up to the rural areas. That's where you see everybody saying, of course, there's got to be a God. We yeah. see this handiwork every day. Yeah, he and reveals in a big himself. metropolitan city, you don't get to see that. So where the Bible says he reveals himself through his creation, so that we're without excuse, because the what we see and what we're seeing in, in, in these images, we're without excuse. It's that this could just happen, something from nothing. What we know now is so very different. I'll give you an example. The Atlantic reposted a an article from 1955 from Donald Menzel, who is the director of the Harvard Observatory. And he was saying that mankind is becoming increasingly aware of the fact that the Earth is probably not unique. In our solar system, one planet, Venus, for example, resembles the Earth in many ways. And if we were to visit Venus with the appropriate equipment, we'd be able to survive Certain types of vegetation might adapt themselves to Venus's climate. Our sun is one of 100 billion stars that make up our galaxy. And there are there is, quote, plenty of room for living creatures to originate 
and to evolve. This is from 1955. Based on the science that we had in 1955, here we are in 2022. How's that holding up for our friend Don? Not very well, especially if you were to read this book, Design to the Core. He's teasing me. I haven't gotten it yet. That when we look at our super galaxy cluster that we live in, the Lanakaya super galaxy cluster, it's unlike any other super galaxy cluster in the universe. It's mm. unique in its capacity to be able to sustain advanced life. And as you move from the super galaxy cluster to a galaxy cluster, there again, you see it's unique in its capacity to sustain advanced life. Then you zoom into the local group of galaxies. It too is unique. Our galaxy is unique. Our partner galaxies, the large and small Magellanic clouds, they're unique amongst all those kinds of galaxies in the universe to be able to sustain advanced life in our galaxy. We're in the just right local arm of our galaxy, the just right local bubble, the just right local fluff. Then you come in on our star. And my peers, ever since Donald Menzel, back in the 1950s, have been diligently searching our galaxy and the Andromeda galaxy to find a star sufficiently like our star, the sun, to be a candidate of a planet orbiting it on which advanced life exists. They have found many stars that are twins of one another, but they've yet to find a twin of the sun. And I remember back in 1995, when they were discovering the first planets orbiting other stars, and my peers were saying, we're gonna find dozens, if not hundreds of planets just like the planets in our solar system. Here we are in 2022. They found over 5,000 planets orbiting other stars. Not a single one of those planets. It's like any of the eight planets orbiting our solar, our star of the sun. And now we've found out that actually every one of the eight planets has to be specially fine-tuned to make advanced life possible on Earth. It's not just the Earth that has to be fine-tuned. All those other planets have to be fine-tuned. And none of them have a twin. And then you look at our asteroid and comet belts. We have five belts orbiting our star of the sun. And we're finding asteroid and comet belts around other stars. But they're either 100 to 1,000 times bigger than our comet and asteroid belts, or the star doesn't have any at all. Either way, you have no possibility for advanced life. So that's the point I'm making this book is designed to the core all the way from the very largest structures of the universe, all the way down to the interior structure of the moon, the interior structure of the earth, the core of the sun. All of this is fine tuned to make advanced life possible. Mm. Yeah, we know a lot more about the universe than the days of Donald Benzel. I remember reading his textbooks when I was a child, but Today, we now know that that optimism really is not justified. And we actually now know the entire universe must be exactly the size that it is and the mass that it is and the age that it is to get life here on planet Earth. The whole universe exists to make a home for us human beings. Can you give us some examples of how the universe, how the planets in our solar system work together to support life on Earth? I've got two chapters in Design to the Core on Planetary Systems. And say, when you look at these other planetary systems, they've got gas giants and Neptune-type planets orbiting close to their stars. 
And when that happens, it disrupts the orbits of the small rocky planets. And then even when you look at the rocky planets and all these other planetary systems, the rocky planets are less dense than they are in our solar system. They're smaller and they orbit very close to their star. And only in the past year and a half did astronomers discover how is it our sun has these unique rocky planets and one of the amazing things is you'd expect that the farther away you go from the star, the bigger will be the mass, the mass of the planet. And that means that, for example, Mars should be at least 50% more massive than the Earth, but it's only 11% the mass of the Earth. And this is called the small Mars problem. But now we've been able to resolve the small Mars problem. What happened was the gas giants especially Jupiter and Saturn, migrated in towards the sun, stopped and migrated back out. And that basically ensured that Mars wouldn't get so big that it'd be a problem for advanced life here on planet Earth. And even Mercury plays a role. Mercury helps break up the mean motion resonances of the gas giant planets. So literally every one of those eight planets has unique features that have been designed to make advanced life possible here on planet Earth. And we now know that what happened with the sun, it had it experienced an event where it transferred a huge amount of angular momentum and a lot of its heavy metal elements out of the sun and into its new emerging system of rocky planets, which explains why Earth is so dense as it is and as large as it is. And also there were five of these rocky planets Two of them merge to form the Earth. Again, it explains why Earth has such a powerful magnetic field, such strong plate tectonics, why it has a big moon, and all of that has to be fine-tuned to make life possible here on planet Earth. And not just life, but abundant life, crazy diverse life. Yesterday, I was at a nursery. It's gorgeous weather where I'm at here in the Pacific Northwest. And so I love to garden at a nursery. And I heard these folks looking at these plants. Wow, this one's weird. I've never seen this before. And it just sparked me that, yeah, there are weird things on our planet. There's life in that we haven't, we've yet to discover. There's food in abundance, not just one kind, but abundant food. And I'm a cook. I love to cook. I love to bake. You have to come over sometime when you're making your way through the Northwest. I'll cook for you and your family. But what I hear you saying is that it seems like the entire universe is a recipe, a fine-tuned gourmet recipe that, that has brought out this amazing dish called life on planet Earth. Yes, so you see it in the longest creation, Psalm 104. If you read through that psalm, God is explaining how he has packed our planet with super abundant life, super diverse life. And if you actually look at the whole history of life on planet Earth, you can see that step by step, the diversity and the abundance has been getting greater and greater. And when God created Adam and Eve, that's when our planet had the maximum diversity that the laws of physics would permit. How do we know we that? Now, how do we know that? We can look at the size of our planet, the orientation of the continents and the oceans, 
and realize all that's been fine-tuned to make possible millions of different species of life. But the maximum carrying capacity based just on the laws of physics and the characteristics of the Earth would say that it's about 9 million eukaryotic species is the maximum carrying capacity. Well, recently a paper was published where they actually determined what is the number of species on planet Earth, eight and a half million eukaryotic species, which means we're really close to the theoretical maximum. And that kind of shows you what in Psalm 104, God was intent on packing the planet. And it has to be done step by step. And so we have this creator putting the microbes on planet Earth first, those microbes chemically transform the planet making it possible that plants and animals, those plants and animals step-by-step step, make it possible to have more advanced birds and mammals and finally human beings. When we humans come upon the scene, we're on a planet that has this long history of life where we now have the maximum abundance and the maximum diversity. And as you see, an abundance of food, that's amazing, is that the plants on planet Earth don't just produce the food they need, they produce a super abundance of food. So it provides for all the animals, provides for the billions of human beings. How is there any idea that could just evolve by chance? Because I could see maybe something happening where there might be some amoeba crawling. I don't know, perhaps. But that balance that you're talking about is so advanced. And the math that it takes and the orchestration that it takes seems so advanced that the idea of chance really mathematically gets erased in my, as I'm so, seeing because it. Because not only are we very close to the theoretical maximum carrying capacity of species on planet Earth, we got there as rapidly as the laws of physics would permit. Mm. And when you look at the fossil record, you can see these mass speciation events happening the very moment that they're even possible to happen. And so there's no time delay here. Everything is happening immediately. So for example, there's an event about 580 million years ago where you got the gas skiers glaciation event and you got the great unconformity where you have these massive landslides coming off the continents and being dumped into the oceans. That had the effect of jumping the oxygen content from less than 1% in the atmosphere to 8%. Now, when you're at 1%, all you can really have is microbes. But with 8%, for the first time, it's possible to have large animals, animals with large bodies. Mm. But what do you see in the fossil record? The moment it jumps up to 8%, immediately these animals appear. There's no time delay. And then if you want animals with internal organs and brains and eyes and digestive tracts, you need a minimum of 10%. Well, that happened suddenly about 538 million years ago. But the moment it jumped up to 10%, you got the Cambrian explosion, where you had this sudden proliferation of all these advanced animals with advanced body plans. And we call those body plans phyla. So, for example, we humans belong to the chordate phyla, which would include all animals that have a backbone 
or a neural cord that runs down their body, which would include a lot of the invertebrates. They all show up at the very beginning of the Cambrian explosion. There's no time delay. The moment you get that 10%, they show up. And people like James Valentine, one of the world's foremost paleontologists, he writes that this is naturalistic evolution. We would anticipate that mutations, gene exchange, natural selection, epigenetics, those are the four mechanisms that generate changes in organisms. But they said they generate small changes. And so you're going to get a proliferation of species, which will lead to eventually a proliferation of genera, and then families, and then orders, classes, and last of all, phyla. But it says, when you look at the Avalon and Cambrian explosions, you see the exact opposite. The phyla show up first. They show up suddenly. They show up simultaneously. And he's written in his research papers, this is the opposite of what you'd expect from a naturalistic perspective. Oops. Uh-oh. <laughs> That's a big uh-oh for pretty much every textbook that we have in every high school, public high school in the United States of America. It is, but it's consistent with the uh, operation of God who wants to get the maximum number of species on planet Earth at the maximum abundant level at the very moment that's optimal for him to create human beings. So that model fits the data that we see. That's astounding when you think about that, that because we really have been indoctrinated into thinking that, yes, the natural, this uh, Darwinian evolution, natural selection, and yet the Bible has been talking about our origins since long before the first, long before 1610, when Galileo first looked through the first telescope, and long before we started thinking about anything beyond the where we are today, the universe and such. And yet, here it weighs true. That is really one of the most astounding things about the Bible. That is another thing that's hard to get away from, Hugh, is that it transcends the science, the known science of its time. Yeah, and it's written for all generations of humanity. So, I mean, if you're living 40 generations ago, it can communicate, it can communicate to us today. We're seeing things in the Bible that people in previous generations didn't see. That's something that Peter wrote about, that these prophets were being inspired by God to write scripture that they knew was not for them, but was for people in the future to know and understand. We're part of that future generation where we're seeing things in the book of scripture that hadn't been seen before. We're seeing things in the book of nature that have not been seen before. But I want to go back to what you said earlier, and that is how there's an increasing number of people who say, I don't think there is a God. They need to be looking at the book of nature. They need to be looking at the book of scripture. Biblical illiteracy in the U.S. is at an all-time low. And so people aren't exposing themselves to the revelation from God. And they're not behaving like you, where you take a vacation once in a while and get out of Seattle, go into a wild place, and actually get to see nature. And that's something I've observed as I travel to rural parts of the world. People who live outside of the cities, you see a very high level of belief in God. 
because they're being exposed on a daily basis to the book of nature. And so as we move away from the book of nature and we have less connection with the book of God, we have less understanding of who God is and how is that working for our society as we see ourselves breaking apart? We see good becoming evil and evil becoming good. We have, we're really destroying ourselves and our own soul, our own psyche. I think that all of these things can't be a coincidence, just like all of the glory and beauty that we're seeing through. We'll show that image one more time from the web telescope, uh, all of that glory, all that beauty, it's not a coincidence. It isn't. And when we look at our own human species, we see examples of inexplicable expressions of good to other people. We also see inexplicable expressions of evil towards other people. And people say there is no God, they say that's just evolution. It's survival to fit us. But we are the only species on planet Earth that expresses altruism where we have no possible benefit of return. We're altruistic to people who live halfway around the world that we know we'll never meet. But we're also spiteful or we'll do harm to others where that harm actually damages ourselves. Uh, yes, they'll go and hunt prey, but they will not engage in spite. Spite is something that's unique to human beings. And as Pascal has said, when you look at human beings, we're inexplicably evil and we're inexplicably virtuous. You can't blame that on naturalistic evolution. There has to be a supernatural reason for why we humans are so incredibly virtuous and at the same time so incredibly evil. Hugh, I'm going to ask you a question off the cuff, because one of the things that maybe our audience doesn't know about Hugh is that you will engage in these glorious conversations with strangers on airplanes, wherever you might be. And it's just as though you have these divine appointments. And I'm wondering if maybe you could share a story of an interesting conversation you may have had recently. And I didn't prep you on this, so I have no idea what you might share, but but I know this happens to you a lot. It's kind of part of who you are, isn't it? Well, it is. And I'm encouraging people who are followers of Jesus Christ, be ready for opportunities that God gives you. It's a promise that we see in the book of First Peter. Always be prepared to give good reasons for the faith and hope you have in Jesus Christ. But be prepared to share those reasons with gentleness and respect and a fear of conscience. And if you will do that, God will supernaturally bring people to you that he is prepared in advance to hear and respond to those good reasons. And you never know where the opportunities are going to happen and don't get depressed. So for example, if I'm in a really long line at a bank or at a grocery store and says, boy, it's going to take me another 20 minutes to get out of here. I say, maybe God's giving me an opportunity. And there's always people in line who are being frustrated and they're bored. So I'll strike up a conversation with them. And people ask me, well, how do you get a conversation going? One thing I've learned about my fellow human beings, they all like to talk about themselves. So I'll just ask them questions. How often do you come to the store? What do you do for a living? Get them talking. 
If you ask them enough questions, eventually they ask you a question. And they'll notice, for example, I'll be standing in a long line and I'm reading a research paper. And they say, uh, what is it about that paper? Do you actually intend to finish that before you get to the front of the line? <laughs> I said, well, that's my goal. And then we get a conversation going about the significance of what I'm reading. And then suddenly I attract a crowd. I remember one time I was in this bank where there was a good 40 people in line and only one teller. And so I was reading this research paper and people were saying, what are you doing there? So I started talking about the significance. And suddenly all these bank employees that were at their desks, they all jumped out of their desks and they came around this long line in the bank because they wanted to be part of the conversation too. So I had a chance just to share with them how the science I was reading in this paper was providing even more evidence that there's a God beyond space and time that huh. created the universe and has a goal of redeeming billions of human beings under themselves. And so I was able to give out business cards. I mean, wonderful opportunity. So yeah, you can be depressed when you say, wow, what a frustrating situation here. Maybe God's using that for an opportunity. And you don't want to miss those glorious opportunities. You know what that says to me? That while that Gallup poll reveals that belief in God has dwindled, we have not lost that that inner desire to know. People running from their desks, people leaning their ear in, that's not just because they're bored. It's because we really want to know. We have that desire to know God created inside of us. Everybody, I especially look at the young men uh, that live around me. They don't go to church. They don't identify themselves as Christians, but they're intently interested in having deep spiritual conversations. So yeah, we may be at a Starbucks with a half dozen young men in their 20s. And what do they want to talk about? They want to talk about what is it that exists beyond the universe? And how can I have a relationship with the creator of the universe? And they want to be able to ask questions. And when they tell me, I say, if you have this curiosity, why aren't you in church? So if I go to church, I hear a sermon, they sing a few songs, they pray, and that's it. What I really want is to have deep dialogue conversations where I get to debate, I get to engage, I get to ask questions. And I think that's what God said to David when he said, David is a man after my own heart. Because if you read the Psalms, David put very challenging questions towards his creator. He says, God, I'm upset. I want answers. I know you got the answers. I'm coming to you. Please give me those answers. And he would wrestle with God. And God actually blessed David because he was a man that wanted to engage him. And I think that's true of a lot of people that we meet. We think they're not interested. They really are interested. You just got to give them the right environment. My final question, bringing it home to the ultimate God story, we looked at these wonderful images from the Webb telescope, looking at the very oldest parts of the universe. And that's exciting. It does reveal a a lot about our universe, which reveals more about the intricacy and the intelligent design. But what can we learn about the deeper God story, the story of that, that points to the gospel? I want to end with the gospel. Sure. Well, you know, this is what amazed me when I was a young man in Vancouver, British Columbia, 
realizing the universe had a beginning. There had to be a cosmic beginner. And I began to look for that cosmic beginner. I searched for in the writings of the great philosophers. That proved rather frustrating. And then began to look at the world's holy books. And what I saw is that they all put God in a human box, except for the Bible. The Bible is unique amongst the world's holy books, and it describes God and his features and his attributes in a way that can't be understood in the context of length, width, height, and time. Mm. But it also told the story of how the one that created the universe humbled himself and decided to come to us in human form. So he divested himself of all the powers that he had as a creator of the universe. And for a short time, became a human, lived among us. And what really impressed me as I read through the gospel accounts is that he would be in front of a large public audience with his four brothers there, his sisters and his mother. And he would say, which of you can ever accuse me of being, having committed any sin? He claimed to be morally perfect. And his mother agreed with him. And his brothers agreed with him. Which is even more, a mother, I could see, yes, Not my son is perfect, mom, right? but brothers, <laughs> heck no, we saw, we could see that in the story of Joseph, right? So, you know, he demonstrated moral perfection, but in his moral perfection, he decided to take upon himself the penalty for all of our moral offenses against God and against one another. And so that's what he did on the cross. And I argue that when he suffered on the cross, it wasn't just the six to nine hours in our time dimension. It wasn't just a human dying on the cross. It was God dying. And so in those six to nine hours of our time dimension, he was able to take upon himself the penalty for every offense committed by every human being who had ever lived and basically made an offer to humanity. I will trade my moral perfection for your moral imperfection on one condition. You make me the master of your life. I know better than you do what's best for you. You're a mere human being. I know it's best for you. Put me in charge of your life and I will turn it in a different direction. And I'll send my Holy Spirit to step-by-step step deliver you from the sins in your life. So when I read that in my Gideon Bible at age 19, I said, that's an offer that's too good to turn down. So I signed my name in the back of the Gideon Bible saying, yes, I want to trade my moral imperfection for the creator's moral perfection and to put him in charge of my life because he knows better than I do what's best for me. And I've never regretted that decision. Nor have I. And I see the beauty of it in every part of creation, including those gorgeous images that we saw today from the Webb Telescope. Uh, thank you. Hugh Ross, can you give us one more little look at your book? Yeah, this is it. And anyone can get a copy for a donation of any amount to Reasons to Believe. I will so. put a link at My Michelle Live and you can get your copy. How exciting that is. I'm expecting mine in the mail soon. Hugh, it is always a pleasure. God bless you, and thank you for being with us today, and thank you for watching and listening. Remember that this God story, as belief in God wanes, the truth of God does not. 
you sharing the God story makes that difference. You sharing this, liking this, and subscribing helps to propel this God story so that more people can hear the truth that will set them free. So thank you very much for being part of the solution. We'll keep doing it. And you keep listening. More SciTech Talk at MyMichelleLive.com.